Welcome to the Progression Health Podcast. This is episode number 38, and I'm here with Dr. Diana Hill. Diana, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm a clinical psychologist in Santa Barbara, and I I wear a lot of hats. So I have a private practice, uh, consulting and clinical psychology practice. I supervise postdocs and uh, people that are in training and offer training to mental health professionals. But I also am really interested in spreading these ideas of ACT, how to live well, how to develop a meaningful and rich life to the general public. And I do that through a podcast, Your Life in Process, as well as workshops and retreats and uh, lots of different ways. Very good. So you do a lot, a lot of work. Um, and how I found you through uh, your work is the Act Daily Journal that you have, which has been very useful for me. Um, but before we go ahead to that, uh, you have a, a PhD and a lot of clinical experience. So what did you do your PhD in and how did you get your, your start in psychology? It's a long, that's a long answer. I mean, I guess a PhD is a long road. Uh, so I... I got my PhD in clinical psychology. I was specializing in eating disorders. And when you go and get your PhD, it's like super specialized. So I was studying um, early on. I went to go work at University of Colorado at Boulder, where I was studying with a woman named Linda, uh, Linda Craighead, who was looking at something called appetite awareness or interoceptive awareness, awareness of your hunger and fullness cues and using some behavioral methods of self-monitoring of those cues to help folks with uh bulimia, binge eating, uh, and restrictive eating. And along the way, uh, I was also getting, um, I got my own um, certification in yoga. I had a long-term contemplative practice and I got involved in something called dialectical behavior therapy, which is another, like a sister of ACT. It's a a very, that uses a lot of Zen principles, but it's very behavioral and evidence-based. And I got interested in combining these two approaches. So at the time there was a woman named Deborah Safer, who was, uh, still is at Stanford and the, um, behavioral sciences department there. And she was the only one that was doing this type of dialectical behavior therapy for uh, eating disorders. There's only a couple of like case studies out over 15 years ago. And I approached Deborah and she was willing to take me on as sort of like a co-student. So I worked with Stanford and um, University of Colorado and was studying interoceptive awareness, aptance-based skills, behavioral-based skills, sort of like this sort of mix between East and West for bulimia and did a treatment outcome study. Long story of <laughs> my uh, PhD, but it, it, you know, in terms of research, it's always, you can't just say I studied eating disorders because that is, you know, there's so much out there in each of these arenas of mental health. Yeah. And uh, what were kind of like some of the main findings, like, or the main learnings that you, you learned through that PhD? Because it sounds like you're not just doing eating disorders, you're also incorporate, incorporating some of the um, Eastern philosophy as well. So that's like a huge amount of uh, research to learn from. Well, that study was, uh, it was a treatment outcome controlled trial in RCT looking at um, in particular for people that binge eat and purge. We actually had sort of a subclinical population in, in, in addition to people that met um, criteria for bulimia. So when when you're doing research in the arena of mental health concerns, you're using something called the diet, um, the DSM. So the um, statistical manual that gives you these criteria, but not everyone fits in that. Actually, most people don't fit in that. So uh, we studied uh, looking at this, this intervention of helping individuals pay attention to their hunger and fullness while also developing some skills for emotion regulation. And those skills were things like mindfulness of the present moment, um, distress tolerance skills, acceptance-based skills. What we found was that um, it was, you know, this type of intervention was as effective as 
um, what, what at the time was the gold standard cognitive behavioral therapy. So we were getting response rates that were similar to cognitive behavioral therapy, but it was really highly acceptable to the therapist and to the client. With these types of acceptance-based approaches or mindfulness-based approaches, it's doing more than just helping you maybe recover from stopping binge eating or stopping bulimia. It's building a life that's worth living. It's building a way of being in the world that is more satisfied to find. Um, and for therapists, it's also really, as you know, you've read the Act Daily Journal now, like as a coach, it's also really helpful to have a type of therapy or approach or a way that you're coaching people that's, that you can really stand behind and that you practice in your own life. So the therapists were practicing these skills on themselves while they're um, working with their clients and really kind of taking down that distinction between the therapist being up here in some position that has all the knowledge and the clients being down below in a position that's like supposed to learn from the therapist, but really putting everyone as humans uh, that could benefit from these acceptance and mindfulness practices, as well as interoceptive awareness, which was an important part of recovery. For a long time, eating disorders recovery has been like giving people meal plans, and uh, which can be helpful in reducing binge eating, but it's not really teaching you how to listen to your body and how to use your body's signals to guide your eating. It gets easier over time. Sometimes meal plans can get harder over time. Yeah, it's, it's interesting listening to all the experience you have. I feel as though like there's a common thread of it's as though you uh, teach people life skills, how to like design a lifestyle they would like. What would you think of that? Yeah, life skills. And some of them are uh, counterintuitive life skills. So what I mean by that is now that I, now I'm, I'm doing ACT or acceptance and commitment therapy. And, and oftentimes the life, the life, the way that we approach life is trying to control it fix it, problem solve it. And we think of those as life skills and problem solving is is quite helpful when uh, problems are solvable, you know? So like I had ants in my kitchen because it's really dry here in Santa Barbara. Like you can solve the problem with ants, right? We take our compost and we leave it outside at night instead of leaving it on our kitchen counter during the um, overnight, right? Gets rid of the ants. But when the problems are things that are underneath your skin, like things like anxiety or so, um, a little bit of social phobia or Maybe there's a problem of a craving. You, you crave food. Those types of problems actually backfire when you try and problem solve, when you try and control them. And so some of the life skills that I'm teaching with ACT and that we were also teaching, um, you know, back in the day when I was doing research on eating disorders had to do more about the life skill of, of accepting and being with the discomfort that shows up for all of us and how to make space for it in our bodies, how to also connect to meaning in the presence of discomfort to help us stay with it because most of the things that are meaningful in our life are also uncomfortable, whether that's a meaningful job. The Progression Health Podcast has teamed up with TRX. So TRX is a bodyweight training piece of equipment that you can hook up anywhere, anytime. And uh, I highly recommend it. I use it in every session with my clients. I use it to warm up and also for stretching. Uh, but if you are traveling, which is where I recommend everyone use it, you know, it's hard to get to a gym. Uh, it's hard to find the time. But you could literally work out from your hotel room with the TRX um, and the door attachment that it has where it doesn't damage the door, but it gives you an effective workout. I also like to add in other things like uh, glute bands and uh, resistance bands. Um, but once you have the TRX, then you can figure all that out. So get yourself 50% off on the TRX home workout equipment with the code Progression Health TRX and boost your workout effectiveness and consistency. Progression Health Podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is an online therapy service which will help you to more effectively manage your mental health. Mental health is very important and it's something that all of us are realizing now. 
now, especially after the pandemic. During the pandemic, for me especially, it was very challenging. And I, I reached out to BetterHelp. I, I tried out a few of their licensed therapists, settled on one for the majority of the pandemic. And I found uh, the help that I received invaluable. And the great thing also is that you can speak to your therapist outside of sessions. Um, if it's not working out, you can switch. Very affordable. It's really easy to use also. Um, and if someone hasn't tried therapy before, but you're kind of, you know, you're curious, I would highly recommend BetterHelp. So what we've done is uh, we've got a sign up link I'll attach in the show notes. And basically you can get a discount to get started and uh, start improving your mental health today. So BetterHelp for better mental health. Job or a meaningful relationship or um, wanting to uh, take care of your body in a different way. All of those things are going to be uncomfortable at times. So a lot of the life skills have to do with being present with discomfort and then knowing when to problem solve and change things when that's necessary. Yeah. Like uh, the problems, a lot of them, they aren't solvable, you know, like I'm just thinking in the most extreme example, maybe this carries over to binge eating is, you know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, they say, you know, you're, it's kind of a day by day thing. You're never fixed. Right. So I'd imagine that like you could always kind of relapse, but you kind of manage or live with the challenge that you're facing in life and you just you keep reapplying the skills you, have, you learn. So um, it's, it's a much, instead of trying to fix a problem, if you kind of live with it, I love that idea. I think that's like much more effective. Um, and I, I think in a kind of basic way, it's almost like living with your mind, like living with consciousness, you know, um, which kind of brings me on to my next question. And you, you do retreats or do you host retreats? And I think you were on a retreat. So could you just talk a little bit about like, what is a retreat? Um, what's it like? I, I feel like I've heard about a retreat about three or four times in the last six months. So I'm like, maybe I have to go on one soon. Um, and yeah, what, you know, what kind of people can expect from a retreat? Well, I was, when you said that you wanted to talk about this, I was so pleased because no one's asked me that question before. And, um, retreats are a really important part of my life personally and professionally. And that's why I'm leading them now because I've been doing them on my own for so long. And now I'm like, I got to bring some other people. This is just generally how I work. I'm like, I got to bring other people into this uh, experience that I'm having personally. And there's a good amount of research now that's emerging around retreats and the benefits of retreats. So I'll start with just saying, what is a retreat? I mean, that's like saying like, what is Italian food? <laughs> you know, there's there's a lot of variety in, in what a retreat is. So there's retreats where I've been on that are um, very westernized. So going to some place like, uh, there's a place called Multiversity in Northern California, where, you know, you go in and um, you're taking time off from your daily life and maybe you're slowing down and you're uh, incorporating some mindfulness practices. Maybe you're learning about, a um, concept on a retreat from a retreat leader. And then I've also done more immersive retreats like yoga retreats or meditation retreats. My most recent one was at a monastery in uh, France. So I was fully immersed in the monastic lifestyle and I actually brought my whole family to that one. I, I started bringing my husband to retreats, I don't know, number, a number of years ago because I, I, they, I wanted him to be part of this. I didn't want to be doing it on my own and then come back and I'm all zenned out and he's still, you know, stress case. I wanted us to do this together. And now I'm bringing my kids. But the benefits of retreat are, um, are there's, there's multiple benefits. If we think about our stress, stress is sort of a combination of demands on us. And when our demands are high, we get stressed and resources when our resources are low. So retreats help with both of those. They remove the demands of life. They take you out of work and off your phone and um, you, you're not cooking, you're not cleaning so that you can just really start to slow your nervous. And then they also build up your, your resources. And some of the ways that they build up those resources are things like um, nature connection. There's a good amount of research now on the benefits of nature for our, our well-being, our physical well-being and our mental health. Things like um, there's a researcher out of University of Oregon who's looking at fractals. And 
what he's found is that when you look at a certain, you know, sort of the ratio that's found in nature, fractals, which are repeating patterns like the tendrils of a fern or a succulent or, you know, the, the, a rose petal. You may just notice looking at a fractal in nature kind of calms your nervous system. It actually does restore mental fatigue. And it leads to brain states as measured through EEGs that are like a relaxed. Nature um, is really beneficial for creativity. People that go for walks out in nature, when they, when they test them pre-post after those walks as compared to, you know, uh, walks that are in just um, like cityscape, we see increases in creativity. We see increases in attention. We see benefits to mood. So retreats offer that. And then retreats also offer the opportunity to practice something. So whether you're going on a yoga retreat and you're just dedicating yourself to practice yoga, or for me, if I go on a mindfulness retreat, it's an opportunity for me to really practice and deepen my practice of meditation because I have enough. So I get to see my mind uh, and what's happening with my mind. The last thing about retreats that people often don't think about is it's a way to connect with others very deeply. So oftentimes you're going on a retreat with other people. This last one that we did up in Plum Village, which was the Hans Monastery, there were 700 people there from all over the world. And uh, we would go on these mindful walks through his his monastery. And we'd go like into through the aspen trees and through the plum orchards. And they would be silent for like an hour, a mindful walk, very slow walking. And you'd be walking like maybe you're like 300 people back from the start of the walk. And all of a sudden you'd find yourself slowing down. Why am I going so slowly all of a sudden? And then maybe 10 minutes later, you'd hit a hill and you'd realize, oh, 10 minutes ago, somebody 300 people up hit a hill and you start to see how interconnected you are. So it's a different way of connecting with people. Maybe it's not so verbal, but it's seeing how we are all interconnected. So those are some of the benefits of retreats and and the research on them is, is good. You know, post-retreat, people's telomeres um, look a little bit better in terms of the aging of, on our bodies. Um, we see improved stress that is maintained over the long term and um, just, just overall well-being. Brilliant, yeah. I'm just remembering, actually, I was on a like half-day retreat and it wasn't that immersive, but it was uh, so interesting to just sit with your mind. And it feels very counterculture, you know? Like, I'm thinking of uh, just, you mentioned interacting with people and it's easy to get caught up in the whole kind of transactional, like it's, you know, I'm trying to make a friend or I'm trying to make a business connection. And that's very, it can be very toxic. Whereas if you're just being with somebody in a silent space, there's no, you know, no one's trying to get get anything out of it just just to be with somebody else. So um, that sounds like something I, I'm like, yeah, I have to try it now. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm just thinking, what is the kind of like durations, typical durations? Um, and what would you recommend for somebody like myself or anyone listening who's interested in trying a retreat? Well, you can do, you can do your own personal retreat at home. So there's even, you know, I, I teach with Inside LA, which is a meditation center in Los Angeles. And they, they do often will do like day long online retreat, <laughs> you know, so you can do this in your own home. You don't even have to leave your home. I like personally, I like leaving my home because there's too much at my home that are the demands. You can do anything from a day to a uh, week long, you know, or weekend. Um, some of my retreats, my favorite retreat centers are places like Esalen up in Northern California, here at Rock, which is Jack Cornfield's retreat center. And then I teach at um, Blue Spirit, which is in Costa Rica. And that is the best because it is a, a retreat center that's right on the coastline uh, and you, you know, you get all your needs met. So you're eating really good, nutritious food. You're getting really deep sleep. You're immersed in nature. And then uh, you're you're doing these daily practices that are really beneficial for you. So anywhere from, but you know, my dad is like a like super, he's a meditation teacher and um, practitioner for a long time. He goes on month long silent retreat every year. So, you know, you can get really gnarly with it if you want to go, if you want to go away for a big chunk of time. 
but really up to you what you can do in your life, what you can fit in. But uh, mini retreats are possible too, even just for me now, having a silent meal is a little retreat in between my sessions going for a walk instead of writing a note and just walking down and around my garden and walking back you know, eight minutes. That's a little mini retreat that is keeping my nervous system and kind of soothe during the day, but also um, just sort of that, that check-in with ourselves that we don't do very often. Yeah, that check-in is, is key. You're making me think of how, uh, so I would do a little bit of meditation and I think, you know, you do your, you know, five minutes, 15 minutes, what have you, and that's it. But it's not. The, the, the meditation continues throughout the day. So um, yeah, that's just a, a good reminder for me. But uh, what, what have you noticed, like kind of changes kind of before and after from doing a retreat? Like what what could be some expectations that people would see? Um, and what, are, what what do people typically go to retreats kind of with or, or for? What challenges do they have? It really depends on the person. You know, I think some people go on retreats um, in the same same way that like someone would train for a half marathon or a like, why would you do that? I'll tell you. Uh, well, I'm doing one right now. And yeah. I, <laughs> it's actually for my mental health. So I actually feel so much better and so much clarity after I run. So that's what my motivation is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. So you feel that clarity, but then there's also this element of it being a, um, a commitment to something kind of big, right? So you're going to do your daily meditation and then you're going to go to a retreat and really deepen it. You're going to do your daily exercise and then you're going to do your half marathon and it's going to be like a, a deep, a deepened experience, right? So, so there's part of that, that it, um, it can deepen whatever practice that you have. But I, but I see you asked about sort of what I notice. What I notice, the first thing I notice is that as soon as I get to a retreat and all everything is stripped away, I see how nuts I am. <laughs> like my my head, what a mess my head can be. And so I, I no longer have stressors on me. Everything is taken care of, right? But my inner commentary of my mind is judgmental. It's constantly thinking about what's the next thing. It's unable, my, my body and my nervous system is unable to settle. I feel hurried. I feel like um, dissatisfied, like all those things that I can blame on something in my day-to-day life. I have lots of reasons why I need to hurry or I have lots of reasons why I need to plan or be ahead of where I am or feel dissatisfied. But when you're on retreat, you don't have those reasons anymore and your head is still doing it. And so it exposes that. And then once that's exposed, it's really uncomfortable Like the first two days of retreats, like detoxing, right? So then when that's exposed, what's cool is you actually start to work with it. And the ways in which I work with my mind is, is one, something called cognitive diffusion, which is just stepping back and noticing my mind pretty harsh, harsh towards me, but also, uh, you know, critical towards others. How is that? How, how does that translate into how I feel in my body? Because you, you start to develop a very heightened awareness of yourself. And that can include everything from you, you eat a carrot because all, like all the toxins are stripped out. So you on retreat, you're eating really super whole foods. You know, oftentimes it's like, you know, grown at the retreat center or somewhere nearby. You eat a carrot and you start to notice the sweetness, right? Or you you notice sounds sounds of birds and then what happens is you can get into this deep state of of awareness of mindfulness of your senses um, awareness of your own mind and then finally you can start to settle back not a whole lot the tricky part is you leave that and then all of a sudden you're like at LAX <laughs> you're flying home or you're in the like secure and what I notice actually which is really interesting is that that's when the practice begins because now I know oh my judgmental mind oh my always I have to be one foot ahead of mind like that's all going to show up oh my controlling mind that's all going to show up at the LAX airport and then it's going to show up when I get back home and life has not changed even though I've had to be in 
experience and how am I going to approach life? And I noticed that my, that my ability is to, to stay centered after retreat, I, I very much less bothers me. And then I need to retreat again, like six months later, because it all kind of, <laughs> I forget. Yeah. The, uh, the real world sort of, or not the real world, but you know, uh, your day-to-day life kind of undoes all that good work you've done. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you give an example for people who kind of maybe haven't experienced the, the, the benefits of just being mindful or that kind of diffusion you spoke of where it was like a particularly testing or trying situation and because of the work of the retreat, you were like less affected maybe or you handled it better, you know? Well, yeah. So I can give you an example from two days ago. <laughs> um, my uh, my husband and I were... Uh, um we were in the, we were in our kitchen we were like cleaning up dinner and uh and my kids wanted uh, ice cream sandwiches after dinner and um and there was only two cookies left but there's you know i didn't want ice cream sandwich but there's three there was three of them and and there was this like tension that started to rise up and my husband stepped in and he's like controlling the kids and i'm getting judgmental of like you're being a dominant jerk <laughs> you know and 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 our all of us started getting into this like conflict and my, my, actually my littlest who's nine, who was on the retreat with us, he went out of the room and he got a, we have this big meditation, beautiful meditation bell in our living room. And he brought it into the kitchen and he rang the bell. Wow. And when, when you're on retreat, at least the last retreat we were on the bell rings throughout every hour and um, multiple times a day. And what you do when the bell rings is everybody stop and you can, listeners can do this right now. You stop, you take a breath and you just check in with yourself. How am I doing? What's happening right here and right now? And then everyone does that on retreat. And then you go back to whatever activity you were on with that presence. So my little one rings the bell and we're like, oh no, (laughs) he caught us. And we all stopped. We took a breath and we checked in and we remembered. Guy that I'm blaming as being a jerk. He's not a jerk. He's my husband, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and I, I care about him and my kids that are, you know, annoying me. You know, and, and, and I can be more present and more loving in this moment. So that's an example of, you know, sometimes we need someone else to ring the bell for us. It may not be our kid that's, that's getting a bell out of our living room and ringing it because, you know, not every kid's going to do that. Most kids, but it may be something else that rings the bell in our mind or in our heart. If I need to see what's really true here and, um, and that, that I've caught in my head and in my judgment, my, my critic and my, being right well yeah that's a powerful example and uh that's great that uh your littlest one was able to uh use the benefits of the retreat uh i'm sure there's lots of moments like that so it's, that's that's great um and what is it do you think about daily life that takes us let's just say kind of off the path of being like present and uh like is there any kind of common things that kind of cause us to get like i guess more stressed or more caught up and less mindful uh what about daily life is actually helping us be present is the question. <laughs> Not a lot. No, <laughs> you no. Know? So, um, you know, I, the way that I often describe a lot of things with clients is I use this Russian doll metaphor where I, I don't know if you've ever seen Russian dolls. There's like a little tiny mini little wooden doll and then like a bigger doll that circles around it and then a bigger doll and then a bigger doll. And you can kind of like open up the big doll and find all the little ones inside. Right. Yeah. Uh, so the littlest doll in there is your brain. And so even before we talk about what is it about modern life that's preventing us from being present, we can say, what is it about my, my biology, my brain and how my brain evolved actually not to be all that because our brain is evolved to, you know, in terms of the, to survive, we have this whole frontal lobe that's involved in planning in future and, um, also in 
remembering past negative experiences to prevent us from having them again, right? So our brains have evolved sort of this, this protective mechanism, which is helpful if you're trying to go seek out food or like go find a place to build your shelter uh, or remember that that plant like killed your brother, <laughs> don't eat it, <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, but it's not so helpful in the modern world. It's not so, there's a mismatch, an environmental mismatch. And this this concept of environmental uh, mismatch between our brains and, and our environment is, um, you know, all over the place. You know, same thing with sedentary culture and bodies that, you know, are designed to move. But so we start with that littlest doll of, of we have a negativity bias, we have a a bias towards future thinking and past rumination. And then the the layers of the doll on top of that are things like, uh, you know, certainly technology use um, is very much taking us out of being in the present moment, you know, being on our phones and um, not, you see it all the time now, right? You're like, people are at dinner and they're not seeing the person across them. They like, we're like uncomfortable with being present. Uh, and then we also um, that have the habit of, and, and, and culturally also, I think we've been taught to, if, if discomfort shows up, get rid of it. And so that is also another thing that's sort of reinforced reinforced uh, by our culture of, of we don't want to be present because uh, because if in the present, it's uncomfortable. So we have the habit of escaping through lots of different ways. I mean, we eventually avoid through substances, through numbing out, uh, through rushing through things by, you know, overthinking things, things like that. So all those contribute, I think. Yeah, there's so many options for us to uh, just kind of not sit with ourselves. Um, and yeah, kind of like a tricky question, but why do you think it's just such a kind of a human problem to sit with like your mind and, and maybe not be distracted or not, you know, numb out? Why do you think that's such a challenge? Any thoughts? Well, I first want to say there's a, there's interesting research behind that particular thing, which is, um, Erin Westgate, who's someone that, uh, she's a, incredible researcher. She studies boredom and she studies something called psychological richness, but she did this seminal study. I actually interviewed her for your life and uh, process and it's coming out at season three, but she did a seminal study where she gave, she had people sit in a room for 20 minutes and they had the option of sitting in the room with their thought or applying some electrical shock to themselves. <laughs> and 67% of men chose to apply electric shock to themselves than be alone with their thoughts. <laughs> and about, I think it was like 25% of women. I I failed to ask her the question of why this gender difference, which is kind of interesting. But But basically being alone with our thoughts is not a fun place for us to be. So much so we'd rather shock ourselves. And why is that, a case, that the case? Is because we have very untrained minds and we often will believe our mind to be true. And a lot of the stuff that's in your mind is not yours in the first place. It's like something that your third grade teacher, you know, said to you. It's your parents' criticism. It's social media's blah, blah, blah. It's, it's not even your own, it's not even your own thoughts. It's, you know, you've just sort of adopted it. And it's, it's not fun to be in there. So we don't have the skill of, of being with our own minds and with our own thoughts. We don't know what to do with it. And so we, we do what we know how to do, which is run away from it and escape from it and not be present, not be with it. But with the problem with that is that we also miss out on some other wonderful things or useful things that are in the present moment, which is like our life, you know, yeah. our life is in the present moment. So, so we have our own versions of, of self-administered electric shock, you know, like everyone has their thing that they, that they do to kind of escape. And uh, it's important thing to, to learn how to train your mind. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. It's, it's the mental training to kind of always keep coming back to the, the present moment. Uh, mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, so currently you are working uh, primarily with the ACT. Um, what would I call it? It's kind of like the uh, approach to psychology. So could you just mm-hmm. talk a little bit about what is ACT um, and how it can be useful? people. Yeah. So ACT is a, um, it's a cognitive behavioral approach, but it's sort of a newer cognitive behavioral approach that uh, was established. I mean, I say newer, it's been around for about 40 years. It was established originally by um, Kelly Wilson, Stephen Hayes, and Kirk Strassel. And since then, it's been researched. Um, There's over 900 randomized controlled trials. Uh, and it, it's been researched in all sorts of domains, this method that's really about how to help people develop something called psychological flexibility. And psychological flexibility is your ability to stay present in this moment, to know what matters most, know what your deepest values are, and choose to take committed action towards those values, even when discomfort shows up. So that's the example. I would say the most psychologically flexible person in that example of the ice cream sandwich in my family was my kid, right? So he knew like, okay, whoa, discomfort, I'm going to take action in the service of my values, even though like this is, you know, I'm kind of like telling, you know, I'm ringing the bell on my parents right now, right? So there's these processes that have been um, sort of defined and researched, six core processes that together develop your skill of psychological flexibility. And, and when you, when you practice these processes over and over again in your life in lots of different domains, all sorts of good things happen. So we see that, um, psychological flexibility is associated with, um, keeping a commitment to an exercise program. Psychological flexibility is associated with, um, sort of body image flexibility, being able to not get bogged down by negative body image thoughts. It's associated with deeper relationships, um, better chess playing. They're using it with Olympic athletes. It's it's being used for both people that have mental health problems, even like psychosis, and people that are, that want to um, really become high performers in the world. Wow. So um, what, what's the difference between a flexible mind state and a rigid mind state? Because I'm thinking of stuff like in the culture, you know, being a younger guy, you see stuff like you know, work hard, hustle, grind, all this kind of stuff. And it's promoted as like, you know, a good way to live. Um, but uh, there's kind of side effects where it's kind of like you're not sort of thinking for yourself, I feel like, you know. So like, how is there a difference between being flexible and, and being rigid? Yes, in, in um, lots of different ways. And I, and I want to say I'm not anti work hard. Um, I'm actually not even anti go fast. What I'm interested in what's is what's driving it and the why you're doing it. And do you have a choice in it? So when we are when we're psychologically flexible, we're choosing to work hard because it's in line with our values. And it's um, not because we're trying to avoid feeling something. So if you're if you're working hard at something because you're trying to avoid feeling bad about yourself, like you base your self-worth on your performance or your productivity, that's not psychological flexibility. But if you're working hard because you really care about this podcast and you want to help people in the world and you want to make a difference in people's lives, that's psychological flexibility. So it's not really necessarily the behavior behavior that that it's the the sort of like the why behind the behavior. And we can be we can become inflexible in in lots of different ways. So we can become inflexible in our thinking. We can have rigid thinking, rule governed thinking, should based thinking. And you know, thoughts come into our mind and we just follow them without ever saying like does this line up with my values? Is this the type of person I want to be in the world? Is this what's most important to me? We just follow the rule, right? That's inflexible thinking. We can also be inflexible in um, our response to our emotions. So it may be that some emotions we really like and when they show up, we want to keep them around or some emotions we really don't like. And when they show up, we get rid of them. Being flexible in response to your emotions is being open to all emotions that will show up as you pursue 
a meaningful and rich life. In fact, the more that you pursue a rich and meaningful life, the more likely you're going to have both positive and negative emotions. So, and then the third way we can be flexible is being flexible with our behavior and, you know, being able to respond flexibly in the moment based on what's needed in that moment and based on what your values are, as opposed to just um, rule governed behavior or these sort of like patterns and habits that we get into uh, that are more kind of automatic and, um, and rigid. Yeah. So it's a more thoughtful and, and well thought out approach to living as opposed to having like a certain black and white set of rules. Is that like a fair summary? Yeah. And it's, it's sort of like the kind of thing that no matter what shows, it's like the difference between a guideline and a rule, like no matter what shows up, you know how to respond to it because, uh, there isn't, I think sometimes we want to recipe. It's the different, okay. I'm a cook. I love to cook. And, um, I learned to cook from my mom who learned to cook from her grandma, from her mom. And, um, the way that I learned to cook is not through a recipe. I learned the, the principles of cooking. Like you want to have like little acid, you want to have a little bit of salt, you want to have, you, you want to have, um, contrast. And so I know like when I'm cooking a meal, how to, make a good meal. What happens when you have a recipe and you don't have an ingredient? You're screwed. You're like, oh, can't do it. Can't, sorry, can't make, you know, whatever I was going to make for dinner because I don't have this one ingredient. If you're a good cook, you can work around any ingredient because you kind of get a sense of what that ingredient was doing, right? So the same is true for life. If we have like a formula that we think this is going to make me a good person, or this is how I'm supposed to exercise, or this is how I'm supposed to, um, you know, work. What happens when life throws you, you know, kind of sideways? You don't know what to do. But if you have some guidelines around how to be in the world, how to be psychologically flexible, and those those six things are things like practicing acceptance that we've talked about, things like knowing your values, things like how to step back from your thoughts and not get entangled with them, uh, things like being able to feel connected to something bigger than you, and um, and also, you know, be present and be able to like carry out action. Those are the six things, right? Committed action. Those are principles that you can bring into anything in your life and respond to whatever shows that. Anything we've learned in the past couple of years is that uncertainty is something that we need to become apprentices to. We need to become comfortable with and be with because it's guaranteed. And having a skill set to respond to uncertainty, to be flexible in the face of uncertainty is really going to be essential if we want to navigate, you know, the challenges of, of living. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. It's like we can rise up to kind of the challenges that, that face us but um we have to kind of be flexible in the face of those challenges to to meet them or take action or be present um mm-hmm. so can you just talk a little bit about the accepting point i feel as though i you know obviously doing the journal i've got a better understanding of acceptance but it was it was quite tricky initially to get that because i think a lot of people think when they accept something they kind of concede to it or maybe they give up or you know there might be some misconceptions around acceptance so you know how does that typically look like if you're practicing this like flexible mindset can i throw that back at you because you said you've been working on the journal yeah what, what did you notice about acceptance acceptance for yourself. You said I, I kind of heard it first and now I have a little bit of a different. Yeah. So I was, I wanted to actually give my definition of, you know, acceptance and, and commitment. Um, so to accept your current circumstances, like whatever situation you're in, you know, and not try to deny it and be like um, avoiding it. So if you're feeling, you know, good, you know, maybe kind of celebrate that and, you know, do something symbolic. Or if you're struggling and you're in a hard situation, like, you know, you're working, let's just say late, for example, you kind of acknowledge, okay, I'm working late. Um, and you're sort of just flexible in the face of 
of the challenge or the experience you have. Um, yeah, but I feel like I could do a better definition than that. So that's I'm a, still. That's a great one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I liked what you said about um, sort of what you were alluding to there of like working late. Like there's stuff that we don't want, like just stuff about life we don't want. You know, whether it's like, I don't want to do this job. I don't want to be, I don't want this person to be my family member. I don't want, you know, to have this injury. There's there's lots of like, there's a series of I don't want. Life is a, it has a series of I don't want. And when we resist that, what happens is we get another layer of suffering. And this this second layer of suffering is actually the one that's um, really toxic to us, resistance. Um, and, and we know this even like there's research out of UCSF, like on a cellular level, non-acceptance versus acceptance changes your relationship to stress. So Alyssa Apple's looking at things like telomere length and um, uh, people's response to stressors. People that do not accept and resist and they push back against um, show greater cellular aging, you know? So there's the, I don't want resistance thing about acceptance. And a, a lot of the stuff that I actually think that we're working on accepting is stuff that's under our own skin. So even if you notice in your body, if listeners are noticing, could notice right now, at any point in time, there's some kind of discomfort somewhere in your body. There's, there's emotional discomfort, like you and I are doing an interview. So there's sort of like a little bit of edge of nervousness in hundreds of these. And there's always a little bit of edge of nervousness. Okay. That's showing up inside of our body. And then I have like a little bit of hip pain. I went for a, ro- a long run yesterday and, and for, over 40, it's like you get hip pain. <laughs> uh, so I have a little hip pain in my right hip. I'm sitting on the floor cross-legged. And what our tendency to do is is to do one of two things, ignore it. I'm just not going to think about my nervousness and kind of hold my breath the whole time. I'm not going to think about my hip pain and just hope it goes away. Or we, so that's sort of one avoidance strategy, or we try and control it. I'm going to really try and control my nervousness and like make it, you know, calm down or, but really the the path out is to make room. Like you can notice what's happening in your body and be like, hello, nervousness. I see you and I'm here in this interview and I'm relaxing around it. Like I'm making space for it and I, I'm, I'm going to tend to it, but not in a try and control way, but really in a like caring way. Cause I think of acceptance as, um, as caring for something, caring for discomfort. Yeah. That's, that's probably going to be the tricky part to, for me to grasp. Um, but I know that just you, you spoke of like a hip injury. If that was to happen to me when I was younger, I would have been like, okay, I would have been that kind of, you know, that black and white approach. I'm taking a week off, you know, activity, you know, uh, and that would be the best except. I could do or I would have like kept on going as normal mm-hmm. and you know you can see how both of those are a little bit extreme whereas now I'm kind of like right you know you're not 100% you're like your hip is you know 60-80% let's see let's be curious and see what we can do given this updated bit of information that your body's giving you so um, I'm, I think I'm good in, in certain circumstances like that for example with an injury but mm-hmm. other things uh, there's a lot of work to do but you know, okay wait 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 so you just you just gave me a little in so what are some of those other things um, I don't know maybe I feel as though like you know with my, with my own partner you know when I'm talking to her or uh, maybe working with clients or something along those lines. It's almost like I don't know, you know, because back when I was younger and I would have trained through or took the week off, I didn't know any better, you know. But uh, yeah, I think interpersonal kind of relationships and stuff like that. Yeah. What shows up that's uncomfortable in the impersonal, interpersonal relationships? It's, it's interesting, actually. The first thing that comes up is uh, trying to control it or trying to be like, you should be this way or I should be that way. And then what happens when you do that? Well, you can't control somebody, right? So <laughs> it uh, probably causes more. Yeah, there's nothing worse than feeling like like someone's trying to control you, right? It, it, it does. Um, it it lends to this um, this pushback. Right? As soon as someone's trying to control you, you're going to push back against that that control. And what we really crave, I mean, I think we crave acceptance from others for sure, and we crave acceptance from ourselves. Like that, that I'm okay the way I am. And by you know maybe some of my behaviors need a little improvement. <laughs> you know, I could I could work on changing this behavior or working on you know changing that behavior. But that's not really 
at my core, like who I am, like who I am is enough and who you are is enough, right? And the, you know, I think in interpersonal relationships with acceptance, it's closely related to compassion. And this, this, this concept of uh, like the moment in the the fight with my husband. And I was like, I'm going to stop thinking about him as a jerk and start remembering he's my husband, right? That, that I, that he's caught in something where he's feeling like he's needing to control whatever. And that I can actually see past the um, being right and, and really seeing the human there. So that's also part of acceptance is I think, or maybe the next level up in acceptance is getting to a place of compassion or understanding. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. I like the, the definition of compassion is like to suffer with. So uh, it's really short and sweet. And it's just like, yeah, like this other person is suffering as well. You know, they're not like having, you know, the time of their life, most of their life. But uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I want to think about the point of control is that when somebody tries to control me, oh, my, that is like, you know, one of my biggest pet peeves. I'm like, you know, it, it gets my, what would you say? It gets my back up or whatever. So it's ironic that I try to, you know, sometimes do it to other people. And it's like, I know myself how ineffective it is. So it's definitely, it's a really interesting point that you got me thinking about. Um, yeah, we all, we all grab onto control in the face of uncertainty. And that's like relationships are uncertain, you know? And so it, it makes sense that we try to grab on control. And, and most likely we were controlled at some point in time. And so we kind of learned that behavior. But um, the, the, um, the seeing, I mean, you use, you use the word compassion is to suffer with. And I think, yes, the de- like definition wise, passion is to suffer with. And there's another aspect of compassion, which is in a desire to alleviate that suffering and a desire to alleviate it for you and for me. And when we can tap into just the, those two wings of compassion. So one, one wing is to, to, to suffer with, to see that we all suffer. And then the other wing is, and what can I do in the presence of that suffering? That second wing, the, the, how can I alleviate the suffering is often what um, motivates us to kind of drop the rope in the truck, the tug of war of control. Cause we, cause we start to see, oh, the more that I'm trying to control, that's not alleviating suffering. That's causing suffering in somebody, myself and them. That's, that's brilliant because whenever I thought of uh, compassion, I always thought of, okay, I just have to tune into the other person, you know, where are they at? And then once we're on the same page, it's, it's good. But it's like, yeah, if you alleviate the suffering for yourself or for them, that's, that's like an extra level up, a step up. So that's really useful to, to consider moving forward. Yeah. In, in psychology, they make the distinction between empathy and compassion. So empathy is that first part. It's the tuning in and to feel that, you know, feel what someone else is feeling. But this, the compassion has that second. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about like learning life skills and kind of like you said, you know, you might learn something when you're younger, but you can, you can constantly like relearn. So like, as you get older, maybe you go on a retreat, maybe you relearn, oh, you know, I'm playing a toe war myself. And then like you said, you drop the rope and then you move forward and you've less, hopefully less suffering. Um, so the second point of, uh, of act was, was values, I think. Is that right? One of them. Yep. Um, that's kind of something I learned recently, like, you know, the last couple of months. Um, do you think values are something that you need to like clearly lay out and it's like, these are my values or is it, yeah. How do you come, how do you come to know your own values? Well, there's lots of different roads to values. Um, some people like to have like lists, you know, these are my top, these are the 10 values of our organization, you know, or this is the, our family, the values of our family. And I think lists are fine, but only if you really know what that means in your body and in your being and your behavior. And so the way, the way to get to that list is, um, I think two roads for values. One road is what's painful to you. And the other road is what brings you vitality. So what's painful to you, you know, and, and if you're talking about you and your partner and your desire to control, your, you know, your partner in some way, when you're in that moment and you're experiencing that desire to control your partner, there's probably something that's linked to your values underneath that because it's uncomfortable, right? Or if I'm nervous, okay, here's that one. If I'm nervous or a little bit subtly anxious every time I'm on an interview, there's probably a value that's underneath that. Like I really care about 
explaining these concepts in a way that that makes sense to people and and that is useful to people. And so I want to do a good job. And that makes me kind of nervous. If I, I don't get nervous when I go bowling, Z- like zero nerves. Why? I don't really care about bowling. Okay. So when you have discomfort show up in your life, sometimes it can be like open that box up and you'll find a value in there. And then when you get to that value, like, you know, I care about sharing these concepts of acts in a meaningful way to people people that will help them change their lives. And that's, you could distill that into like a word and you can put it on your keychain and maybe that helps, you know, but you don't have to. And then the, the other avenue to values. And, and so you can think about this if you're, a, if you're a coach, uh, because for me as the therapist, people will tell stories like in therapy and half the time I'm like half listening to the story. And then the other half of me is listening for value. I'm like a highlighter. Oh, I get it. They're like super pissed off at their sister because they really value integrity, you know? So I'm less care about what happened, what she said and he said, and more about what the value is. The second avenue of vitality is a, is a, is a, um, is a pathway to values is the other thing that I'm sort of looking for and looking in people, in, in people. And um, what, when people are talking about things that make them light up, that you'd see sort of like this energy, things that you will get into a flow state with things that, um, you do them and it doesn't feel like work, even though you're working hard, right? That can often, often also point to what's important to you, what your values are. And it can be, you know, it's just everybody, it's th- different things flow to other people, you know, everyone's boat. Like I'll work with people that are really into cats, you know, <laughs> so lots of different things, but those are two ways to figure out your values. And once you get those figured out, then you have some information about how you want to design your life. And, 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 and maybe it's a little bit different than what society has told you about what's important. These are from the inside. Yeah, it's like it gives you a, almost a, a lifestyle to live by or a way to live because you can see, here's what I've been told or here's what I hear. And you can pick apart what you actually like about, you know, living. And uh, the, the point you make about kind of when you care less, you feel nervous, for example, with the bowling. What, is that a, it sounds like kind of a, a nice way to live when, you, when you're relaxed and you care less. Is that an optimal way to live? I'm, I'm thinking of that because uh, so uh, like my sleep is important to me, mm-hmm. but I like my coffee and they almost go, they're like opposite to each other. And I found myself caring less about how much coffee I drink and it's less uh, in my day to day life. It's kind of less stressful, but I'm like, maybe my sleep is being impacted. So I'm like, when you say you, you care less, you feel less nervous. I'm like, you know, um, trying to decide maybe for my own values i'm trying to decide you know what's what's really important to me you know and i'm kind of confused now i'm like is it good to care a lot is it, is it not good to care what what are your thoughts on that oh i'm in the business of caring a lot about the things that are important to care about so um so you when you're talking about values you're talking about sleep versus coffee yeah um it's not about valuing coffee or valuing sleep there's a there's a value underneath those and and or maybe a few values underneath those some of those values may be like i really care about for some person that, that says they want to sleep i really care about the health of my body you know at a cellular level some people it's i really care about sleep because at least for me when i don't sleep well i'm irritable and i'm just like not fun to be around um so, so, so what I value is actually being kind. And when I don't sleep well, I'm not as kind. Or when I don't sleep well, I'm, you know, not as focused at work. So those would be the values would be, I really value my work, you know, being focused at work. Or I really value being kind. And then on the, the coffee side, it may be like, maybe there's values around, I really enjoy value enjoying life. Or I really value my exercise, like having, getting a good workout and coffee helps me with that. Right. So you got to get a little bit underneath it. And it, it isn't about caring less. I actually, I use the, vol- the bowling example. As an example, it's actually not always good to care less. It, it, caring more comes with a cost, which is pain. And therefore we have acceptance. <laughs> I want you to care more. 
But making those decisions around coffee versus sleep, there may be some kind of like, that's actually where problem solving comes in. Like, okay, maybe there's some like time when you cut off your coffee so you can sleep, so you can like meet all your needs at once. But that's, I don't know. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm yeah, I think it, getting at it. if I was to kind of summarize what you said, it's kind of caring more about the things I care more about. So it's like, what do I care more about? And is it coffee or is it sleep? <laughs> Which sounds like such a silly example to use, but it's like, yeah, sleep is of course more important. So for me anyway, so yeah. I need why, to is sleep, why is sleep important to you? Sleep's important to me because um, when I sleep well, I'm in a better mood um, and I can perform better. Like I have more energy to, you know, live, live fully. So even though coffee does kind of give you a bit of energy, um, it, nothing trumps sleep. Like sleep comes first. Yeah. And yeah. So that's how you would use values. You wake up in the morning, you crave coffee. You're going to want it. Um, or whenever you have your coffee. I don't know. But you say to yourself, I'm choosing sleep because when I sleep better, I, you know, I'm in a better mood and I feel better. And I want to give that to myself. I really want this for you. Like you tell us, Ross, I want you to feel better and be in a better mood. And that's why I'm giving you this gift of not having coffee and choosing sleep. And it's different than saying coffee is bad. Sleep is good. And therefore I have like the good little angel on my shoulder and then the, the devil of coffee on my shoulder. And everybody has, for some people, it, everyone has their devils and angels. And as, as soon as you're into those, then it's a should and it's a rule and you will rebel against it. And you will feel, you don't like being controlled. You'll feel controlled. And then what do you do when you're controlled? But when you feel like it's, it's, I'm, I'm giving myself this gift, give myself the gift of 15 minutes of quiet in the morning to practice. It's, it's, it's such a gift to have that. As opposed to, I make myself wake up at 5.30 in the morning. Oh my gosh, this is terrible. So that's where you can use your values to help motivate your behavior. And what we know about values motivating behavior is that people are more likely to stick with something when they it's motivated by their values. They're also more likely to work harder at something when it's motivated by their values. So whether that's sleep or other types of um, health behaviors, or it's also like motivating you to not be controlling of, of your partner. If you remember the values of why you don't want to do that or why you want to do something different, it'll help you. So yeah, kind of just, I'm thinking of my own work with my clients, like, and as a coach. So when somebody says, I have this goal, it's, it's more important. The goal is good, but it's more important to think underneath it. What's the underlying value here that you're kind of like, I guess, uh, speaking to, to use that as your motivation as opposed to the goal. Is that right? Yeah. You know, one way to think about goals and values is sort of like if you were to head north, where are you, where are you located? I mean, I never asked you that. Where are you? SF in San Francisco. Oh, you're in San Francisco. Yeah. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. Uh, like great city. Okay. So if you were to head, Head north. We're both head. We could both head north and get to the same spot. I'm in Santa Barbara. So if we're heading north, you can think about the value is heading north and what that looks like, which way you'd orient your body, the direction you'd move. And then goals are things that you may meet along the way. So you may meet, um, you know, some Sierra mountains, you know, or you may meet some, you may meet some rivers to cross or those, those are sort of the goals that you kind of set for yourself to be indicators that you're heading north. But the difference between a goal and a value is a goal you reach. Value is an ongoing process that you never get to. I mean, like you never get to being a, a loving partner. You just continue to be a loving partner. You never get to being, um, you know, uh, it, it, there's no end point to it. So goals are helpful. I, I like, you know, goal setting. There's there's definitely um, something about a sense of mastery and achievement that's really uh, nice for us as humans to feel like I, I reached that goal and it's satisfying. And it gives us an opportunity also to download and savor that, that we've, that we've 
reach something, but goals are limited because what happens often for people is they hit that, they meet that goal, they get, they do their half marathon and then they're like, okay, now I don't need to run anymore. Or they hit some, some, some number on the scale. Oh, I don't need to, um, you know, eat differently anymore. Or they don't hit some goal and they say, oh, I didn't hit that goal. It's not working. I'm not going to do this anymore. Right. But if you have the true north, if you have the north setting value, you continue the value whether or not you hit the goal. Yeah, that's so useful because the goal is like, it's going to it's gonna end. It has a fixed time point, but the value is sort of like ever really, I guess. Yeah. So um, just in like in your work with clients or if you hear, you know, your, your kids or any say about their goals, do you, w- would your instinct be to push back or to get them to think about the values or how do you work with values and goals? Uh, let's concretize it. Let's give an example. Do you want to give an example for yourself or a client that we could... Or I can give an example of a client too, but yeah, sure. So yeah. clients typically have uh, a fat loss goal. So they might want to lose, let's just say like 10 pounds, for example. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, but you know, kind of what more is there to it is what I would think. Beautiful. Yeah. There's a lot of research on ACT for weight loss. Jason Lillis is doing a lot of work in that um, area. And uh, the the problem with having weight loss be the only focus is um, you it, it sort of has a, it's missing something. I'm curious why. So I, I'd be started by like, what, let's imagine a miracle happened and you lost those 10 pounds instantly. Like I, I was like a miracle worker and I could just zoom, take them off of your body and you're in the body 10 pounds lighter. What would your day look like? What would you be doing differently? What clothes would you be wearing? What activities would you be doing? Um, how would you feel? about yourself? Who would you talk to that you're not talking to now? What jobs would you apply for that you say you can't apply for until you lose weight? Uh, Tell me more about it and tell me more about sort of what it is that's really important to you, how your life would open up. And then what they don't know is they're, they're like, they're showing their cards because now for me, I'm going to work on all of those things right here and now as if you have lost that weight. So now I know what, what are some of our, some of your values are that we can start working on right now? Because what we, what we often do is we put off, we put off our lives and we, we put off, like, I'm going to start living when X, Y, and Z happens, but we never get to X, Y, and Z. Or when we get to X, Y, and Z, the finish line has already moved out because you lose those 10 pounds. If you do lose the 10 pounds, which most people, you know, it's hard to do, but if you do, you've already moved it out because it wasn't quite good enough because you lost the 10 pounds, but then you're like, you kind of, your body doesn't quite look the way you wanted it to look or whatever. So always values first for me. And then what I measure, uh, I had this, um, so Kelly Wilson, I've learned a lot from, he's one of the co-founders of ACT and just like incredibly wise human being. Another person that is on your life in process coming up. So listen to him. It's completely rambly like I am right now. But so Kelly Wilson always would say, you don't want to have um, a dead a, um, a dead person's goal. So you don't want to have something that a dead person can do better than you. A dead person can stop smoking better than you. A dead person can stop shouting better than you. A dead person can lose more weight than you. What you want is you want behaviors that you can engage in, that you can do. So I don't see weight loss as necessarily a goal. What I see is like, okay, what are the behaviors that I want to help this person engage in that would help them have the life that they want, but also help them start living the life that they want right here and right now. And oftentimes weight loss is the side effect of that. Very good. Yeah, yeah. So they start in the present moment instead of putting it off. I love that idea because like you can even think of any goal or place you're trying to get to. You can't like say, okay, you know, when everything falls the right way then i'll start making you know the behaviors and uh, taking the steps towards the goal Mm -hmm. like that just won't work at all you have to kind of like take action you know like you said as one of the six parts of of that um Mm -hmm. yeah so that's that's fascinating so something i'm learning about recently is uh body image and you have a post uh body image flexibility um so what is body image flexibility what is body image 
Um, and why is it important to be flexible with our energy? Yeah. So if you feel bad about your body, it's not your fault. <laughs> you know, let's just start there. Uh, most, most of us have um, taken in cultural messages, familial messages about our body, right? And so we have, for, for many of us, we tend to over-identify with our body shape and size. Like like my worth is based on the way my body looks. Um, I'm a woman that's in recovery from anorexia and bulimia. So I, I mean, I was like the, you know, that 1% of people that get down to a really low weight and actually live. And so I know, I know about body image from like a, like how, um, how insidious it can become hating your body and the things that you will do to try and change your body to feel good about yourself. Right. And, and so if, th if that's the case, that's not your fault. Uh, there's standards of beauty that are unachievable. And, um, we've been, I'm kind of told a lie, which is that to look that if you look a certain way, then you're going to feel a certain way. But body image flexibility is different than like positive body image because um, for some people they may not. It's like a big, it's a big stretch to get to the point of like feeling good about your body. But maybe the in between place is to be able to live in the body that you have and live your values with the body that you have. So that would be an example. An example of that maybe. Say you go to the beach and you really like to go in the water, but you never go in the water because you you are don't like your body. Body image flexibility would be to take those feelings with you and that discomfort with you and go in the water because it's something that you want to give yourself, which is the experience of being in the water. Or say you um, have a lot of body image concerns. You don't, a lot of times people will, with body image, um, negative body image, they won't dress their body in in certain ways. They'll wear really baggy clothes or they'll cover up their body or they'll um, do sort of like fixing behavior. Body image flexibility is is stopping doing that flex, that fixing behavior and allowing yourself and the discomfort of being in the body that you're in, but but doing living your life and, and having it not be just about your body. So it's it's a it's a little bit of a different angle than the the positive body movement. I have nothing wrong. I, I would hope that everyone can get to a place of loving their body and feeling good about the body that they're in and all of that. Um, but that's a, a big leap for many people. Yeah. Well, so I don't have as quite like a big story like like yours. You know, or not big, but so my experience with body image is not the same as yours. Uh, I didn't have like a diagnosed condition, but I think a lot of like men could understand uh, the idea of like, it's almost like a joke I've heard where it's like the day you enter the gym is the day you'll feel forever small. I think w women have different challenges with body image, but men always feel like, oh, you need to be more muscular. Um, oh, it's the opposite for women. Then I think it's from what I've read, there's a kind of an unrealistic standard to be thin. So for guys, it's an unrealistic standard to look like, you know, a fitness model. And uh, it's almost like I was lucky and uh, I kind of used a bit of act when I was younger. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll never actually be this muscular standard that I, I hear in society. So once I realized that it was like a light bulb moment, it was like, oh, OK, so we'll just keep moving anyway. We'll keep training and stuff like that anyway. But just know that this unrealistic standard that you've like inherited or you heard from somewhere or picked up is uh, it's out there. But uh, you can still keep going, I guess, in spite of that. So is that like an example of action and action in a way? Yeah. I, you know, when you say that, it just it like breaks my heart. <laughs> You know, just thinking about men feeling that way about themselves and, you know, in the same way it breaks my heart, you know, women feeling that way about themselves. But I think in particular men, I mean, I, I've got two boys, so they already are getting it, you know, they're, um, and in, in so much with, with men and boys, their development is so like obvious, like this, like transition into like some, you know, some boys, they're, they're going to get their growth spurt when they're in the end of high school, somebody are getting, are getting it in junior high. And already then there's commentary and judgment about them and 
um, popularity and, you know, just all sorts of things based on, based on size. And that can lead you to going back to that concept of inflexibility that can lead you to be pursuing your um, exercise in the service of, 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 of getting bigger, which is really in the service of trying to feel good about yourself, which is really in the service of trying to avoid that negative feeling that you have. <laughs> and, and we have to shift that. Like, why, really why, if you really get down to the heart of it, why do you want to care for your body? Why do you want to exercise? And if you can tap into something other than just to avoid the bad feelings I have about myself, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go better for you in the long run. So like, you'll, you'll have a different relationship with exercise. I still exercise. I mean, I, I I, I run. I love to run. And why do I run? It's not about burning calories or having some, you know, body shape and size anymore. It, it, for me, it's about how I feel. Like you said, how I feel after I run. The chance to just sort of go out and just burn off some of the stress of living, um, the the break, the being in nature and seeing beautiful things. There's nothing better for me than um, going traveling and running in cities and, and seeing places from a run. You know, those are really different experiences than. I'm running because I need to run X number of miles to burn off whatever I ate yesterday. Or for a man, I'm, you know, I'm exercising so that I can build some kind of muscle to meet some kind of standard that may or may not actually be meetable for your body. Yeah, absolutely. Like I just remember thinking back when I was younger, I had this idea in my head that it's an unmeetable standard. So I like, okay, the next step is to take steroids, for example. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't want to do that. You know, that's not my value health is my value and it's crazy to think back now i would never i would never do that and if anyone wants to that's fine but um i was just like that's how much the message that was coming in from like external sources was kind of uh, influencing me um and just like you said then exercise has become something more so i guess you kind of mentioned about like instead of having a goal have a value so now it's like i value my health and i value my mental health so i run for pretty much like anxiety management or sort of like mental clarity and um it's kind of making me think about like a longer run i would go on it's almost like a mini retreat in a way if that makes any sense <laughs> because uh when you're running for like you know let's say a, a certain point you're kind of alone with your thoughts so you're kind of just you're with yourself essentially uh whereas you might get that throughout the day or throughout the week so that's kind of what running has become for me it's become something totally different but i think i'm lucky you know i think a lot of people would still and and the whole body image issue it's like it still can come up at any time you know so it's like you get better at uh i guess living with it do i i know I, I think for me like running is no longer running away running to be with running to be with myself or to be with this planet and see clearly and though the same is like running you know same with my body is I'm, I'm no longer trying to run away from the parts of my body that there's still parts of my body that are always going to be like the parts of my body that back when I was eight years old, I didn't like, and I still see them. And be honest, there were the parts of my mom's body that I saw her not liking, you know, and being able to be with those parts of my body with compassion and just say, yeah, like this is hard. It's hard to be a human. It's hard to have these messages about our worth in this way. And how do I want to change that? There's this, a great author, a great book, The Healthy Deviant, Lara Durasimo. And she writes about how to be healthy in this world. You have to be a deviant. You have to go against all sorts of cultural expectations and standards around, uh, you know, even like to be healthy, you need to move your body way more than culture is telling, you know, is moving their bodies. To be healthy, you need to eat differently than the way we're being fed or the foods that are being offered to us. But it's not about like rule governed. It's about, I actually am going to be a deviant in the service of health. And and for me, that part of being a healthy deviant is body acceptance. And I don't have to like it to accept it. Those are two very different things. 
You do not have to like it to accept it. But acceptance is is practicing nonviolence and practicing being with what is. Yeah, the body acceptance comes back to act. We're completely centering the whole uh, chat around and yeah, accepting your body and then committing to try and be as healthy as you can in the body you're in. I feel like that's a good place to end. I've taken up enough of your time, Diana. But is there anything you want to wrap up on? Like any final message you want to uh, or any links or anything like that you want to promote? Come to retreat with me. <laughs> I'll be in Costa Rica in April. It's it's going to fill up quick. But uh, And if you want to just listen more about ACT, about contemplative practice, you can do that um, at your life and process. And then I'm also hosting a summit coming in October that's free at strivingtothriving.com. And I have some really great people on it. Alyssa Apple, who I've mentioned, who's that UCSF researcher who researches telomeres, stress and health. I have Jack Cornfield, who's a um, lead meditation teacher, and I'll be teaching on ACT for high achievers in strive. So that will be in, at, from striving to thriving. Brilliant. I'll, I'll attach all that in the, the show notes. Um, thanks very much for your time, Diana. 